Underwriting for AutoLine this week is provided by... We are IAC Group, a global tier one supplier of vehicle interior solutions that span the rapid, ever-changing needs of today's industry. From interior design and engineering to manufacturing and delivery, IAC, our heritage, your advantage. From the Auto Line Studios, here is your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week, where we're going to be talking all about product liability and class action lawsuits in the automotive industry, but especially as they impact the new technology that's coming in. Hybrids, plug-in hybrids, electric cars. And joining me on today's discussion are Mike Ramsey with the Wall Street Journal, Tom Livernoy, a principal engineer with the company Design and Research Engineering, and Fred Frassard, an attorney with the law firm Dykema. Great having you all here today. Fred, let me start with you. I almost imagine that if we were in Japan or China or Europe, we may not ha be having this conversation today because litigation in the United States seems to outstrip every other country in the world combined. Well, that's correct. And uh, I think the, uh, the OEMs have to uh, really be watching in North America and the United States in particular for where this new technology is going to take them from a litigation perspective. Uh, with all new technologies, there's always a rash of claims claiming you either should have done it sooner or you could have done it better, and I think hybrid and electric vehicles uh, will be no different. There's, there, there will be lawsuits. There'll there be, already are lawsuits, that's in right. fact, uh, at least on the hybrids, but you're saying it will hit the electrics as well. It will, but I, my personal opinion is that it will not be, the nature of the vehicles will not lend themselves to a, to a rash of lawsuits. I think uh, hybrid electric vehicle technology is sort of inherently safe. It's kind of an inert technology. And remember, these vehicles were developed in a time period when the auto industry has already gone through the, the Pinto experience or the SUV experience. And so the development of them, there was, there was enormous focus on safety and there's an inordinate amount of testing, interaction with the regulatory agencies, and work through the Society of Automotive Engineers to really produce some, some very, very safe vehicles. Tom, do you see it the same way? You're, you're an engineer who's brought in often to testify in cases like this. Do you see the same thing, that this technology is robust enough that there will not be a whole slew of class action lawsuits? Uh, my view as an engineer is, is, I agree with Fred, in that the, the design process for hybrid electric vehicles was thoughtful and careful just because of the nature and the history, growth of litigation over the past 30 years, and what companies have learned. There is the new element of the high-capacity lithium-ion batteries. Uh, you know, time will tell whether or not uh, they present issues, uh, you know, widespread in the industry. But I think if we look at... Uh I think there, in my opinion, there's been some media overhype of the risk presented by the lithium-ion battery technology. We need to keep in mind that lithium-ion batteries have been present in the consumer electronics market for years. Although there's been problems there as well. There have been occasionally, but not a rash. If you look at the sheer volume of batteries produced versus the occasional incidence of something happening, the, the percentage is infinitesimal. But I think you uh, take a look at the field history so far out in the field, and NHTSA recently came out and stated that they have not yet been made aware of any incident of a uh, battery-induced fire in either a uh, crash test or in the field involving uh, lithium-ion battery technology. And so the field data is looking very promising from that regard. And the other thing to keep in mind is uh, 
you know, we, uh, in 2010, I think there were over 200,000 vehicle fires in internal combustion engine vehicles. And so if you're looking at 200,000 versus zero, looking pretty good so far. 200,000, I had no idea the number was that high, and yet there's almost no coverage of that sort of fire happening. And yet here's, you know, GM with a, a, a battery test that weeks later the battery catches fire and it's all over the national headlines. Well, I think Tom can talk specifically to the technology in that particular incident, but my understanding is that that was not a fire due to some characteristic of the lithium-ion battery, that it was more of a, a coolant interacting with a circuit board uh, after, it, the, after the crash test. It was a post-crash uh, ignition a few weeks after a crash test. You know, it surprised everybody. There's no question about that. I think the fact that it was a lithium-ion vehicle, it probably got more attention than it deserved. The one thing I would point out is that the volume of hybrid electric vehicles on the road today is dominated by the nickel metal hydride battery technology, which is a fairly robust uh, type of a technology. The, the measures taken to, to make lithium ion technology uh, as equal to that as possible, as Fred described, auto companies, battery suppliers, they've all worked very hard to do that. And with, with those batteries, it really amounts to physical protection and controlling the temperature and the charge rate of the battery. And there's been a lot of attention to that. There, there's one thing that I think is interesting about this subject, and, and we're talking about electric vehicles and hybrid electric vehicles, and essentially we're talking about two different reasons for litigation. One is safety and one is loss of value. And um, we can talk about that a little bit more, some of the other guests who know uh, more about it. But the, the safety issue really started when you got these thermal runway events uh, with um, with laptop computers or sort of famous lithium-ion batteries that just spontaneously exploded into flames. And if you think about what causes a fear factor and a buildup and why the media might cover something like that, it's because through no fault of the user's own and completely spontaneously and without any sort of reason why the, um, this laptop computer caught fire. Well, you can see why if you bring that back to an automobile, that would be a frightening thing. Now, whether how it, how often it happens, it kind of, it, you can see it's similar to the, the unintended acceleration. I had no control, all of a sudden the car took off, or I had no control, all of a sudden the battery blew up. The reality is that, you know, that, that as they said, there is a lot of engineering done to prevent this kind of thing. In fact, some of the automakers like Tesla, their, their view on it is quite interesting. They assume it will happen. And they use hundreds and hundreds of cells, very small cells, in a row, and they test, they design their battery packs so as if the battery will randomly explode, but then they design their, the packaging so that it will never catch to the other cells. So um, they're designing this in, but I would take that part there. The, the reality is that it's extremely unlikely that this event would happen and the automakers are designing against that. So it, it's, it's more likely that your car driving down the road with a gasoline engine would, would catch fire randomly than your battery would catch fire, as, as we pointed out. The other thing is, uh, and we can talk about this some more, is that there, you're starting to see these lawsuits about um, pop up now about whether hybrids really got the range that were advertised. Honda's faced some of these and uh, you know, it will be a big question about as we 10 years pass and go down the, the, the line of someone who bought a 
9000 or $40,000 electric car and is now getting maybe somewhat less of the range than was advertised at the beginning, will they have um, uh, the capability to sue the automakers for not, uh, for not providing a, a vehicle that can keep that range up? Fred, how does that work? Because every automaker advertises, your mileage may vary. So how does Honda end up, uh, because they're the ones who have been sued, in this case, class action lawsuit, and we can get into this small claims court discussion in a second, but how do you protect yourself as an automaker saying, you know, here, here's what, you know, we've gone and done the EPA test, the EPA has certified it, your mileage may vary, and you still end up with a class action lawsuit? Well, remember, anybody can file a lawsuit. If you've got a, a hundred bucks and a lawyer, sometimes not a lawyer, as happened with the woman in California who split off from the class action lawsuit against Honda. But anybody can file a lawsuit, and just because they file it doesn't make it true, right? And uh, the best thing the automakers can do is what they are doing, which is stating in their advertising that a vehicle has an expected range, but then noting either with an asterisk or if you read through the operator's manuals or the uh, warranty guides. Which for, nobody does. Right. <laughs> for all the, but what you're responsible to do as a, as a car owner, right? And uh, if you read through those, you see that, that they, it explains in detail that over time, no surprise to anyone, by the way, over time, batteries lose their capacity to hold charge. And I think when, uh, when individuals try to sue on this topic and try to file class actions, I think one of the big defenses will be not only we told you about it, but you knew from your prior experience with your cell phones and your portable electronic devices and your cordless drills that when you used it a year after you bought it, it didn't quite have the same juice it did on the day you bought it. And people know that when they're buying the cars today. So one of the defenses is, is the facts, is reality and, and what, what people know historically. Tom, I would think knowing that, what Fred just said, if I'm an automaker, I'm going to design you know, some protection here. And I may make a claim on range and uh, you know, how, how fast it takes to charge the battery, all that knowing that 10 years down the road, that will still be true. And maybe for the first, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years, the car may actually do better than what I'm advertising. Is that what automakers are doing, is designing in a cushion? Engineers could do that. That's, that's sort of a marketing point. And, you know, the, the fact that, that, that batteries do degrade, that may affect the ability to market it effectively. But as an engineer, if, if an engineering group is told, we wanted to do this over 10 years, they just, they just shift the operating range, and then they work the batteries more as the vehicle gets older. So it is possible. I don't know of any company that is doing that, but it's certainly a reasonable approach. Some of the manufacturers are putting percentages right, they'll put them right in the warranty guide and in the glove box materials that will give you a percentage over time based on average use, how much you can expect the battery to degrade over time as far as its charging uh, retention capability. But to your point, though, um, I don't know if Toyota did this, but um, Priuses that are a decade old, many of them still operate very close to their original um, operating performance, and it's the expectation was that 10 years out they wouldn't. So, you know, I don't know that they built a cushion in, but in that case, they're, they're operating better than they probably had anticipated. And, and how do you answer this argument that customers should know? They should know that the battery is going to degrade, or they should know that their mileage may vary, and yet you end up with people filing lawsuits. Well, I, I, you, Fred pointed out people can file lawsuits. The question is whether they have, have a case. I, I think in this case, it's, it, given the amount of attention there has been to electric vehicles and, and 
um, and their introduction, the type of people who would purchase an electric vehicle, particularly now, and a hybrid vehicle, are very likely to have done a great deal of research, much more than your average car shopper. So it would be extremely surprising that somebody could purchase an electric vehicle and not have considered the fact that the range might degrade over time. And, and if I were, um, if I were a, a lawyer defending the automakers, I would make the point. I'm like, how much research did you do? How, how could you have bought such a new um, and different technology without understanding that this fifteen or $20,000 battery on board might need to be replaced after 10 years or might degrade? Well, I could see where early adopters would go through all that mm -hmm. research and really know the background of it. But I don't know where the tipping point is where you just get anybody walking in who hasn't done that. Fred, let's go back to that class action lawsuit or, or the woman that opted out of it for Honda. What do you make of this, of going to small claims court, getting almost $10,000 in small claims, whereas, you know, if you stick with the big class action lawsuit, you might get a couple of hundred bucks and a coupon to buy a new car, which doesn't seem like all that good of a payoff. Do you think this might be a trend that we're going to see more consumers go to small claims court to get bigger settlements than they would in a class action one? I don't. It may be a trend, but it would be a very short-lived one. I think that was a unique set of circumstances with a, in a particular court with a particular plaintiff where it just all sort of came together. And I know she's uh, had a website and is, uh, is uh, sort of promoting opting out and going the small claims route, but I think uh, I think there's a reason that class actions have remained class actions. She's not the first person to opt out of a class action, is my point. And she had a unique success in a very high-profile issue that uh, got some news. But uh, I do well, not Why do you not think that it might become a trend? Because it's not, uh, it's, an, it's an atypical recovery. It was unusual for her to get that kind of recovery against uh, an auto company for that type of claim in small claims court. I think, uh, I think it, it, it's, it's not uh, a bellwether. Uh, Tom, how do you deal with uh, technical issues once you get into court? Uh, we saw this a uh, couple of years ago with a uh, sudden unintended acceleration with Toyotas. Uh, there were all kinds of claims that it was gremlins within the electrical system or tin whiskers that were mysteriously mm -hmm. growing. NHTSA recently came out and said, no, it was driver error. These people are simply putting their foot on the wrong pedal. But when you go in in front of a jury, especially, and you have grieving family members, how, how do you deal with that? Well, engineers like to deal with facts and data, and uh, I have found that it's best to try and help a jury understand that an engineer's job is to mitigate competing constraints. <clears throat> and when you're designing a vehicle, when you're designing a, a powertrain, which is related to you know, the alleged sudden acceleration, you can't do everything. Um, we don't say things can't fail, but in the automotive industry, there's a very strong, long-lived philosophy of what we call fail-safe design, so that if something does break, the vehicle will respond in a safe way. It doesn't respond in a way where it just takes off uncontrollably. And if, if a jury can, can understand that, it can be made to understand that by clear communication from an engineer or another, uh, another witness, then I think that's the best defense. But we had the National Academy of Sciences going into this. NASA was hauled into this. Uh, the, the Safety Transportation Board was hauled into this. NHTSA was hauled into this. There's all these kinds of people. How do you make that clear to a jury when the experts themselves are having problems getting to the root cause of the problem? 
Well, the root cause of the problem with regard to Toyota is public, and it's pretty much known in that it was, it was, it was floor mat interference that was holding the, the accelerator pedal down in some cases, and there was also a, a very small fraction of vehicles that the pedal would stick a little bit, the accelerator pedal would stick a little bit and, and make, the drive, make the vehicle not go back to idle uh, or maintain a certain speed. And so there, there were issues that were identified and, and resolved, but they were mechanical in nature. They were not electronics. And all of the organizations that you named, NHTSA, the Academy, National Academy of Sciences, NASA, they dug into the software in the Toyota powertrain electronics like nobody's ever dug into anything in the automotive industry, and they found nothing wrong that, that would lead to a wide open throttle. John, your point about uh, all of these other high profile organizations being involved and in, uh, in whether that helps or hurts the defense in a case. And it, in the Toyota instance, you had sort of after the fact or after the claims were made, you had these high profile, uh, very qualified organizations getting in. I think one of the uh, benefits that the hybrid and electric vehicle uh, industry has is that on the front end, in the design and development phase, there has been so much attention on this segment from government and academia and the industry organizations, and there's been just a, a level of coordination that is really, uh, I don't know if I've seen before, and we do a lot of historical analysis of documents when we're preparing to defend a case, but the work uh, with NHTSA, the NHTSA research programs, to the extent somebody wants to make a claim, a product liability claim or, or, or some other type of performance related claim, there's already a lot of ammunition in the, in the box for the automakers. It's, uh, it's really been a coordinated uh, research and development effort. I want to point out something in defense of plaintiff's lawyers, and uh, in, in we actually kind of have brought it up. If you think about, um, you know, our sort of litigious society and, and what the benefits are, the, the benefits are of the litigious society that the automakers have gone to such extreme lengths to ensure that they have bulletproof design, that, that they don't have openings for being sued, that the vehicles are safe and, the, and that there are, you know, all these protocols are designed. And when we've had, what we're talking about now are the ways to make the vehicles so safe that they can't be sued on the back end. So who, we benefit, and not just we, the entire world benefits from our design here to prevent lawsuits. I wonder. I, I wonder <laughs> only because, you know, if I look at traffic safety records in Europe, they're as good as they are here, and they don't have nearly the litigation that we do. I dare say, though, I don't know it right offhand, the same is probably true in Japan as well. I'm not convinced that all the lawsuits filed in this, this country and the cost of them has really benefited society that much because when I look elsewhere in the world, their safety levels in developed countries are very close to ours, in some cases better than ours, without all these lawsuits. Well, and the other issue is, is, is the cost of the defensive engineering. You hear about... Uh, defensive medicine, where doctors are doing unnecessary tests to defend themselves against potential malpractice claims. And that's what Tom was talking about, uh, explaining to the jury the competing interests of marketing versus finance versus manufacturing or whatever. Um, it's been my experience that I see defensive design done where, where there is overcompensation and overdesign in anticipation of a potential lawsuit coming down the road. And we all pay for that, ultimately. It, 
in, in the price of the car. Well, not only in that, but we've seen uh, new technologies, safety technologies introduced in Europe before they were introduced in the United States so that companies can build up a bank up, if you will, a body of evidence so that when they get sued in the United States, and they know it's when, not if, they've got a body of evidence that they can introduce in court. And I, I, I can tell you a number of things, a number of technologies uh, and in fact, right now today that are being held back from being introduced in the U.S. market because of this problem. Well, and remember, every time you introduce a new technology, the plaintiff's experts will indict your existing fleet. Mm -hmm. Why You should have done it sooner is always the, the claim. Or you should have done it like that uh, automaker did. And one thing with the, with the hybrid electric vehicles is everybody's taking a different approach right now. We haven't had real homogenization of of the battery packs and all, and the regula regulatory scheme and everything else. And so when that homogenization happens, whatever standard they end up settling on, there's always the Monday morning quarterbacks. There'll be a lot of looking back at the outliers, the people who tried to do it differently and, and, and criticizing them. Okay. I think Tom has seen that uh, many times when he's That's worked right. in You should have is a common theme in litigation. You should have done this and you should have done that. And uh, new technologies are new for a reason. And the reason is is that they're not ready for the automotive environment, especially 500,000 units a year. Uh, I'm sure that you're aware that very often new technologies are launched on small, small volume vehicles so that car companies can get a feel for how they actually do in the field. And then, then, they, then generally they expand out to broader sales, to, to, to wider application, whether it's in Europe or in Japan or in the United States. But it's always best to start out slow when you introduce something new. You know, and this isn't related to electric vehicles per se, but if you want to talk about an area that it's very interesting with the safety technology is that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about driverless cars or cars that um, become semi-autonomous or fully autonomous in certain situations. Well, it, it's possible now. I mean, the, these can be done now, and I've, you have probably driven in a car that can stop itself before hitting a, a person in the street and, and do things like that. Well, there, those, are very, those are in very limited supply right now. And in an autonomous car, you can imagine what tort uh, liability might be by in, in there in that, stage, in that stage. So you're right. I mean, it does kind of limit the technology. From sure. The I, 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 I'm a big proponent of autonomous cars. I think they'll be transformational. But to your point, Mike, uh, the technology is way ahead of settling the legal issues. Mm -hmm. And that, that's going to... I think going to be a, a battle royale. But, but Fred, uh, here's one thing I wanted to ask you is how do you advise your clients when to settle or when to fight all the way? Because we see some of these lawsuits that are massively big settlements against car companies or even suppliers, but then in appeal when they're no longer in front of a jury, they get whacked down to next to nothing in many cases. How do you advise your clients whether to fight it or just say, look, pay them off? Well, it always uh, depends on a variety of factors, such as where, what your venue is, and whether it's a hostile venue to automakers or not, uh, the uh, validity wait, of wait, 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 hostile venue. You mean judges or counties that are historically judicial against? There is a list the American Bar Association publishes every year of judicial hellholes. They call them, and it's, it's where defendants, corporate defendants don't get a fair shake. And that is a problem because it can increase the settlement value of a case regardless of the validity of the claims. But uh, the uh, extent of the uh, potential damages, the exposure. But the primary issue that I see with uh, representing uh, manufacturers as opposed to insurance companies is uh, whether the product is truly has a problem or not, or whether it's defective. I find with manufacturers, 
They are willing to go to the mat and defend these cases and try cases in very tough venues with very sympathetic plaintiffs. You get some very severe injuries in car crashes. Where insurance companies, it's a financial decision, it's based on their premiums. With manufacturers, there's a real point of pride. You're, you're mm -hmm. saying that we, we messed up on these cars that we drive our own families in, and, and they'll, they'll go to the mat and they'll go and defend them. And so it's a, it's a different analysis when you're dealing with the manufacturer of a product who's being sued versus an insurance company. No question. I've seen cases where a car company will spend more defending a case than they would to settle it just because it, they know it's not their vehicle and they're not going to pretend otherwise. How, how do you find them, though? Because obviously there are defects that get out there that are the manufacturer's fault, even though it tried everything in its possible power to make sure there was not one. How often does that happen where there really is a problem and they fight it anyway? For the sort of work that I do, if I'm involved, it's usually the, the, the OEM has decided there's no defect. It, my experience is if there's a problem with the vehicle, the OEM handles it, and I generally am not aware of that. Is that how you see it, Fred? I do. We don't get to the litigation stage. I mean, most all claims start with a pre-suit type of notification. I, I was injured in your vehicle, and I, I think this was the problem. Sometimes that results in, in voluntary recalls. I mean, we've, we've had recalls. We're humans. We, we mess up once in a while. And when, when I have found, particularly with the auto industry, the, the willingness to step up when, uh, when a, a defect has caused an injury of some kind and sit down and seriously talk about compensating these people, I'm always struck by the... The, uh, the serious approach to try and resolve a, a valid claim. And as Tom says, by the time the experts are involved, it's because there really wasn't any problem with the, with the vehicle. Mike, we're getting out to the very end here. Is that how you see it? Well, well also, just real quick, and, and these guys know this too, different automakers have different approaches. Ford, for example, is like they will fight everything, and that's a strategy to keep people from suing you. And then others, like Toyota traditionally has settled a lot, and that's their strategy. So there are different strategies they handle lawsuits too. Really good. Well, this is a fascinating discussion. I think we could go on a whole lot more with it, but I want to thank all of you. Mike Ramsey, Tom Livernoy, Fred Frassard, thanks all for coming in, and I want to thank all of you for having joined us today on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by we are IAC Group, a global tier one supplier of vehicle interior solutions that span the rapid, ever-changing needs of today's industry. From interior design and engineering to manufacturing and delivery, IAC, our heritage, your advantage.